morning, everybody. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. You're looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find a pew Bible there in front of you. You'll find our text on page 878. And while you're turning there, uh, we do have these mission conference brochures available in the Cheatham Center. This coming Sunday is the start of our mission conference. I can't believe it. It comes every three, maybe four years. And so I hope that you'll make an opportunity uh, or make it a, a priority to attend some or all of these events. Um, there are registration forms there inside those. We'd love to get those back from you. And one other thing, we are collecting a mission offering uh, for the conference this year. And we're going to be supporting sports outreach in El Salvador as they build on to their ministry center. Um, it's, a, and it's an incredible uh, ministry that happens there. Uh, our youth have been down to El Salvador as well as some of our adults serving there. And so I hope that you will um, uh, be able to support uh, God's work there through El, in El Salvador through our mission conference uh, offering. Well, if you are a visitor or you've been out of town for a couple of weeks, we are two weeks into a sermon series on the Ordo Salutis. That's a fancy Latin way of saying the order of salvation. And this morning we will take up the role of conversion in the order of salvation. We've already seen that God's work of salvation began before the creation of the world. It also began in His electing and predestinating love for His people. We also saw last Sunday that God, through the Holy Spirit, causes His elect to be reborn again to eternal life through regeneration. And this must happen before a person has any hope of believing and trusting in Christ through conversion. And as we will see in Zacchaeus' life this morning, once that happens, it is spiritually impossible for a person not to believe in Christ. For Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Not may come, not should come, but will come to me. Even though Zacchaeus wasn't on anybody else's radar for conversion, he was on God's radar. It begs the question, who's on God's radar that may not be on ours? Let's look at Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy word. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Between 2006 and 2009, 
Apple computers ran a very successful ad campaign for their MacBook computers. You may remember them. It started off, hi, I'm a Mac and I'm a PC. As a PC user, I wanted not to like those ads, but I couldn't help myself. The way they poked fun at the problems PCs experienced was spot on. My favorite ad was the one in which the PC guy caught a virus. He was sneezing and coughing and told the Mac guy to stay clear of him in case he caught the virus. And the Mac guy told him quite confidently, well, Macs don't get viruses, so he would be okay. And with that, the PC user crashed and fell backwards. Well, having had a number of issues in my PC, including viruses, I started talking to some of my friends about their Mac computers. They told me things that their Macs did that my PC didn't do or couldn't do. And it wasn't long before I realized I was suffering from personal computer depravity. I needed salvation and I went looking for it in the Apple store in St. Louis. It wasn't long before a salesperson, or as I like to call them, evangelists, started telling me about the merits of Mac computers. And she told me how the Mac had made a difference in her life and how it would change my life. And so you know what I did? I converted. (laughs) I ditched my PC and converted to Macs. I left my old way of computer living and embraced a new and more glorious way. Now, no matter who you are, we've all had conversion experiences like this. We've converted from one brand of deodorant to another because it had more natural ingredients. We've converted from one diet to another because we could lose weight more quickly or healthily. We've converted from one school education to another because we found our children could thrive better in a different environment. These are all things we've converted to out of personal choice or preference. They aren't absolutely necessary for making everyone else's life better, but they do make our life better. In our culture, people generally don't have a problem with conversion experiences based on preference or choice. They're glad that your conversion to that deodorant or that computer or that school is achieving a better life for you. But the minute that you elevate conversion to an absolute necessity, when you say that a particular conversion experience is necessary for everyone to have life, people object. They get riled up and say, how dare you say that I must have that conversion experience? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? Now, why are they saying that? Well, because the way that they view life, the way they are living their life is being challenged. And let's face it, nobody likes to be wrong. As a matter of fact, when Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house to eat, everybody around Jesus got upset with him. Why? Because Jesus was confronting them with the radical nature of God's love for sinners. A love that makes room for the vilest offender. Jesus was pushing on their sense of who was worthy to be saved and it exposed them. In some ways, this was as much a call to conversion for the people as it was for Zacchaeus. So how bad was Zacchaeus? What was his need for conversion? Look down in verses 1 and 2. Luke says that he was a chief tax collector of Jericho and he was rich. Now that sounds benign enough until you remember how tax collecting worked in Roman-occupied territories like Israel. 
Rome, you see, outsourced their tax collecting to the highest bidders in those territories. It was a very lucrative business for these tax collectors. You see, in addition to collecting the required taxes for Rome, they were allowed to collect anything above that amount for themselves. And there, there was no IRS to regulate the law. It was whatever the tax collectors deemed right. It's no wonder a tax collector like Zacchaeus would have been hated by his own people. He not only supported Rome, but he extorted money from his own people. But he wasn't just getting rich as a tax collector. He was getting rich as a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus had started out as a tax collector and had made a decent living, to be sure. But it didn't take him long to realize that he could make more money if he had other tax collectors working for him. What's more, he collected taxes in Jericho, which was one of the most populous centers for collecting taxes. To say he was rich was an understatement, but his wealth wasn't the problem. It was his trust in that wealth that was the problem. It was the authority to give his money to rule over his life. Money was Zacchaeus' master. He didn't own money. Money owned him. Jesus explains why in his sermon on the mountain, Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The love of money will never lead us toward God, but always away from Him. It wants nothing to do with God. Paul told his protege, Timothy, that the love of money is the root of all evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The love of money was so enticing, yet so demanding, that Christians in Paul's day wandered away from the faith. They couldn't live in both worlds. And given that we live in such a prosperous nation, this should sober us. We are bombarded with daily messages convincing us to love our monies and all the ways it can give us that better life. Advertisements tap into our hopes, our fears, and our longings, and they promise that our money can lead us into our own promised land. Are we any stronger than those first century Christians? But it's not just the love of money that leads us away from God. It's the love of anything other than God, that leads us away from Him. The Bible calls that idolatry. It's taking something other than God and making it the ultimate thing in your life. The thing that you give your life to or that you bow down to. It's putting your spouse, your children, your career, your freedom, your politics, or anything else in the place of God. It's looking to these things above God for your happiness to have a better life. And yet what we need to see is that ultimately that is no life at all. So how do we see that? And and more importantly, how do we break free of a power that strong? Well, in short, God must act. God must take what is dead and breathe life into it. God must open the eyes of blinded hearts so that they can truly see. Through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, we begin to see the truth of our sin and the emptiness that it brings. We begin to see who Jesus is and our hearts are prepared to receive Him as Savior and Lord. That's what seems to be happening in Zacchaeus' heart 
when Jesus comes to town. Zacchaeus had more money than he knew what to do with. He could buy anything he wanted except his freedom. Freedom from the love of money. Freedom from the wages of his sin. But if anyone could bring him freedom, Jesus could. If you know the story, you know that Zacchaeus was a short man. Too short, in fact, to see above the crowds. So if he is to see Jesus, he must resort to drastic measures. He does two things that would have been a disgrace for a man in that culture to do. If you look in verse 4, you see that Zacchaeus ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. Now for an older man, especially a wealthy man, to run was undignified. To hike up your robe and expose your legs and take off running was a cultural no-no. That's what makes the parable of the prodigal son so impactful. Because we see the father running towards his prodigal son, shaming himself that he might welcome the very son who shamed him. While running was an embarrassment, it was only second to climbing a tree. Only kids climb trees, not old men. Zacchaeus has knowingly committed two social sins. But, but when God begins to change your heart, you stop worrying so much about what others think. You care about what matters. And what matters is seeing Jesus. I love what happens next. Look at verse 5. It says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. There was nothing accidental about this interaction. This meeting was ordained by God before the very beginning of time. It didn't happen by chance. Despite the fact that Zacchaeus had been rebelling against God, had been running away from him, God was pursuing him at infinite speed. What Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus is this. I didn't come to Jericho so you could see me. I came to Jericho so I could find you. You are the lost one that I have been seeking to save. Let's go have dinner at your house. How many dinner invitations do you think Zacchaeus would have had as a tax collector? Probably none. But here, the person that everyone wants to be with, the man who has healed the sick, the lame, the blind, and has even raised people from the dead, wants to be with Zacchaeus. He wants to have dinner with him. Zacchaeus knows what it means for someone like Jesus to have dinner with someone like him. Table fellowship meant closeness and connection, but it also meant exposure. Was Zacchaeus ready for that? C.S. Lewis writes, There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, that is man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still... Supposing he had found us. Jesus has received Zacchaeus. Will Zacchaeus receive Jesus? That is the question of conversion. God chooses. God calls. God changes hearts. But we convert. We respond by grace through faith and repentance. This is the nature of conversion. Zacchaeus responds not as a dabbler in religion but as a convert in Christ. He responds in faith and repentance. Let's look first at the nature of his faith and then his repentance. Look at verse 6. 
Luke says that Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now here we see the faith of Zacchaeus in that he did not hesitate. He did not waver because God had changed his heart. He believed and hurried down to be with Jesus. And when they got to his house, Zacchaeus received him joyfully, not simply into his home, but into his life. He believed and trusted in everything Jesus said about himself, who he was and what he had come to do. What's more, he believed and trusted in everything Jesus said about Zacchaeus, about who he was and why he needed Jesus. It's no wonder Zacchaeus received him with such joy. In Jesus, he found one who knew everything about him, yet loved him anyway. And he loved him enough not to let him stay the same way that he was, but to change him. In Jesus, he experienced the joy of new life, of freedom from the sin which had so easily entangled him and made his life unbearable. I wonder if there is here anyone this morning whom God may be calling. Like Zacchaeus, you've been up in the tree. You've been watching Jesus. You've been listening to His Word, but you haven't come down yet. Despite God's work in your life, you are still resisting that invitation. You're holding out for an easier path. My friend, you will never know the joy Zacchaeus experienced until you come down from that tree and believe and repent. When we talk about repentance, which is the second part of conversion, What exactly do we mean by it? Well, repentance involves both confessing our sin, that is, acknowledging how we have sinned against God, while at the same time it is turning away from the sin towards Christ. It is looking to Him to help change our attitudes, thoughts, words, and actions. Where do we see Zacchaeus' repentance in the story? We see his confession in verse 8. Look at what he says. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. In his confession, he begins with the sins of omission. The sin of omission is the willful negligence and disobedience to do the things God commands us to do, like honor our father and mother and be a good neighbor. Throughout Zacchaeus' life, he had failed to share his wealth with the poor. He had failed to show kindness to the most vulnerable and most marginalized in the city of Jericho. His confession continues with the sins of commission. The sin of commission is the willful negligence and disobedience to do the things that God forbids us to do, like adultery and gossip. We can only imagine the degree to which he had defrauded people in his tax-collecting business. And yet the way he makes his confession it may make us wonder, if is he really confessing sin? For he says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything. It sounds like he may be disputing the fact that, that he has defrauded people. But that wouldn't be in line with what has already happened. The if simply indicates that he may not have defraud, defrauded every single person that came through his tax booth. We see here not only Zacchaeus' confession, But we also begin to see the change that takes place. Look back in verse 8. We read, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. To the poor that he had neglected and turned a blind eye to, 
He promises to give half of his wealth. That is a staggering amount and shows the depth of his repentance. At most, God's people were required to give one-fifth of their property to the poor. Zacchaeus goes well beyond that amount. Why? Because God has changed his heart from loving money to loving mercy. He wants the good the Lord asks of us, which is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. But he doesn't stop there. For those he had defrauded at the tax collection booths, he says that it will be restored fourfold. Again, he goes beyond what is expected. Double restitution was the norm. And the law required fourfold restitution only for the theft of an animal. Now, can you imagine the kind of rejoicing the city of Jericho must have experienced by the change in Zacchaeus? Can you imagine the kind of flourishing that would have taken place? It reminds me of Proverbs 11.10, which states, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. The righteous ones here are the ones who disadvantage themselves for the good of the community. The wicked, on the other hand, were the ones who disadvantaged the community for the good of themselves. Zacchaeus had gone from being the wicked one, the one whose demise would have been met with gladness, to being the righteous one whose life would have been met with rejoicing. To hear more about how God could be calling us as a people to be the righteous in our city, to bring about flourishing in every sphere of life, I invite you to come back on Wednesday night next week at our mission conference to hear Amy Sherman as she will be addressing these very things. But you know what? Actually, not everybody was happy about Zacchaeus' conversion. Why wouldn't they have been happy, do you suppose? Well, I think it's because they believed that their goodness gave them a seat at the table with Jesus. They thought their zeal, their piety, their love for the law of God brought them acceptance. What made them a son of Abraham? But Jesus was challenging that belief by saying He had come to populate the kingdom of God with those who looked to Him for saving. The spiritual heirs of Abraham are those whose hearts God has changed and who by faith and repentance have trusted in Christ for salvation. It was to be a week later that Jesus willingly laid His life down on the cross to do for Zacchaeus, to do for you and for me what must be done for us to be saved. To be saved from our sin, to be saved from ourselves, to be made righteous before God that we might live for Him. As I mentioned, our missions conference is quickly approaching. I want to end with this story that was captured by one of our missionary partners, the Jesus Film Project. They had sent a team to a remote area in Brazil to record a soundtrack for one of their versions of the Jesus film. And when it came time to record the section where Jesus called Zacchaeus, the only man available to read the part of Zacchaeus was someone who was known as a scoundrel, a man who was always looking for ways to profit at the expense of others. When this man recorded the part of the story where Zacchaeus repented for his sins, he could not bring himself to say the words, I stole but instead said he stole. 
when this was pointed out to him, he denied that he had made the mistake and refused to record again. Eventually, after much discussion, the man relented and agreed to record his part properly. When the recording was finished, the entire village crowded into the school to see the film. Every eye was glued to the screen for the entire two hours. Toward the end, when the film shows Jesus struggling under the heavy cross, showing the price he paid for our sins, the man who had read the part of Zacchaeus could be seen in the middle of the crowd with tears streaming down his face. The man's thieving heart was touched, and his life was transformed by the Savior who died for his very own sins. Have you seen your need of Christ? Has He shown you what you are living for? Don't delay. Respond to Christ in faith and repentance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would You anchor our soul with this abiding truth that You have pursued us with an everlasting love and You will not rest until we have been brought to faith and repentance in You. Thank You for the gift of Your Holy Spirit who awakens our heart, and we thank you for the gift of faith that we receive to believe and trust in Jesus. May it be so in our life more and more and more. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.